Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast focusing on the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. We are your hosts, Zach Smerin and Ben Yenowitz. For this episode, I sat down with Sarah and Samson of Miknafa Aretz, a Jewish land justice organization based in the United Kingdom. Throughout the interview, we explored what it means to have a diasporist relationship to land and all of the human and non-human friends with which we share it. As I was unfortunately unable to record this time, Ben had to double his efforts. As you'll see, these efforts brought us a very special guest host who will join us again for future episodes. The audio of our recording came out a little echoey because we recorded it in the mushroom shed at the farm we were staying at. While this wasn't ideal, the conversation flowed wonderfully throughout our in-person engagement. Enjoy! Samson and Sarah, currently recording this at last full day of Radical Farm Camp, which has been a really incredible experience, building radical Jewish community and working the land and really thinking about what a Jewish relationship to land looks like beyond Zionism and finding connection to land where we are. And I think that's been a really wonderful experience for me. And I really want to thank you guys for hosting this because it's really been a true pleasure. We're so glad that you came and that we managed to get this podcast episode in at the same time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's been a really great pleasure and it's better to be doing this in person. Of course, we are also joined by another special guest host, my wonderful brother, Jordan Yanowitz, who is currently working at URJ Camp Newman as the Teva director, as the nature director, and is quite possibly the most qualified person for the job, perhaps ever, as he just finished a bachelor's and master's in ecology and evolutionary biology. Might be wrong about the specifics, but that is what I believe your degree is in. So Mi'kmaq Haaretz, which is your organization that you guys created, I believe for the last few years you've been doing this, identifies as diasporist, which is really exciting for me. I think we have slightly different understandings of diasporism, but I do think these are more different facets of this idea rather than different understandings of the idea as a whole. So I was kind of wondering if we could get started by having each of you say a little bit about what brought you to the idea of diasporism and how you really came to understand it in the way that you do. I suppose the etymology of the word comes from the same word as disperse, as in seed dispersal. So how a seed will disperse far and wide in a response to a change in environment. And so it kind of speaks to the ways in which people have spread due to a change in their environment, chosen or not chosen, away from their original ecology and ancestral homeland. That is the first thing I think about when I think about diaspora. But diasporism, I came to through, probably through Melanie K. Kancheritz's work around doikait and hearness and what it might mean to actively live in the joy of what it is to be outside of the ancestral homeland and to be wherever we are. What it might mean to go beyond accepting that situation and also to embrace being in a diaspora. Part of that is how does our culture and heritage intertwine with the lands that we're in now? What do we have to give to this land? What wisdom, what practices, what rituals might we have? And I think in these times, and maybe we'll get to this part in a bit, but just in responding to the challenges that we're facing now, that kind of aligns quite strongly to what we need. Like we need to find ways to be deeply rooted in the lands that we're in. And we need to find new creative ways to shift our cultures in order to respond to climate change and the legacies of colonialism and extractivism and capitalism that have got us into a pretty terrifying predicament. That wasn't very personal though, that was more... That was brilliant, that was brilliant. All of that. (laughs) For me, diasporism is also like an insistence on belonging. Like Mm -hmm. I belong here where I am and I say that from you know growing up with a perspective that I didn't quite belong here and that 
the idea of Zionism and the values of that meant that we had to fight for that because that was the only way we could get to belong. Like that was the only true place and sense of belonging and safety as a Jewish person. You know, I really believed in that. That was what I grew up with and that was what I knew and understood to be true. And, you know, in some ways is what I experienced living and growing up in the UK, not quite touching down on this land, but always having a sense of, well, there's somewhere else that actually I'm better suited to or I'm going to be safer in. You know, we never know what's going to happen on this land. Like, we could be pushed out at any time. There was always this possibility that things could change. Diasporism is like a dropping in, and it's a very healing thing for me as a Jewish person who's grown up with a lot of beauty and joy and wonderful Jewish tradition. Entwined in that Jewish tradition is also tradition and culture of trauma that is handed down and that sense of not quite fitting in, not quite belonging. And diasporism is like, you do belong and you do get to be here. And, you know, diasporism is messy and complicated. Like, I get to be on these lands and I'm Jewish and British and, you know, many other things. And that identity is fluid and evolving and emergent and becoming and messy. And that's all beautiful. And embracing a more fluid, mixed-up identity feels crucial for these times we're in. And also, that's what's real. You know, that's what we see in ecology. You know, that is how the world works how humanity and ecologies move so yeah it feels very true to life yeah that really resonates with me as well i came to diasporism in a bit different of a way as what we've been talking about here has been really focused on a diasporist relationship to land which i think is really important because for much of diasporic jewish history we've been denied the right to actually be agriculturalists and work the land and have a relationship to the land that is about cultivation and about love and stewardship and I do think that there is something incredibly radical about finding a deep connection to land in a place that isn't the place that we're told is our ancestral homeland. And I think there's something that's really deeply powerful about the act of actually working the land, which is something that we've been doing this past five days, almost a week. And one thing that's really been in my head since we've been talking so much about Jewish farming practices is just the importance of that. So I was wondering, Jordan, feel free to come in on this as well. Sure. Both Samson and Sarah's descriptions of diasporism really stood out to me. I'd never thought of the connection between diaspora and dispersal. I've been studying plants for the last four years, and dispersal is a key step for ensuring the resilience and the persistence of a population. But diaspora is not just a Jewish phenomenon, like people have been spreading across the globe for thousands and thousands of years. While Jewish ideas and Jewish people have been part of that, we've also adapted, you know, Jewish ideas have persisted in a sense, but also evolved and transformed to be more situated for the times and the different cultures that Jews find themselves in. And Sarah's point that we can be both Jewish and British or Jewish and American or Jewish and Palestinian in some cases really stood out of how Judaism is distinct from a national identity. And yet at the same time, it often incorporates a national identity, especially in the case of Israeli Jews and Am Yisrael. But when we focus our Jewishness as part of our ethics, as part of our relationship to land, to people, to community, it's it's really interesting to think about how Judaism focuses on community and land rather than the politics that comes afterward and gets mixed up in there. And often we lose the Jewishness within our politics, especially in the case of Israel-Palestine, but elsewhere as well. That's a really good jumping off point for the next question I wanted to ask. What would you say is the significance of the relationship between Jewish agricultural practices and Jewish cultural practices? Mm -hmm. Judaism evolved as an agricultural tradition. There was always the presence of nomadic pastoralism and cattle farming as well. God is in this relationship of rain, soil, and working the land. Hamotzi lecha miharetz means it brings forth bread from the earth. And we're part of that earth that's brought forth from God and the processes to make bread, because it's not just rain falling on the earth and growing wheat. We have been entwined with wheat. Making bread is a cultural practice, but it's an agricultural practice as well. And, you know, we make challah, which has a lot of cultural meaning, but challah is just one way to make bread. And people have been making bread for thousands of years. And I think recognizing ourselves as part of the earth in that sense is really vital to seeing how Judaism takes agriculture very seriously and roots ourselves with love in that earth relationship that we have. Mm. 
yeah, I feel like we've really spent the last week just fermenting in this and in ways that I hadn't necessarily appreciated. It feels like the total root of everything of what it is to be Jewish. Even those who, you know, don't necessarily think of Judaism as having agricultural connections. You know, like Jordan said, our very roots are totally tied up. Judaism emerged from the shepherds and farmers of a particular bioregion, and all of our festivals and rituals have been turned portable, but from those agricultural rhythms connected to different moments of the harvest and praying for rain and just having that intimacy with the lands and that totally influencing Jewish culture and of course that culture has shifted over time as we have been dispossessed and displaced from lands and have had to take those traditions and really turn them into symbolic representations of what they once were but that like totally feeds into the cultures we have you know that we have such a strong and vital food culture again you know we've been exploring so much this week that I see now how you know that comes from those agricultural roots and it comes from being displaced and like food being the thing that we can carry with us you know recipes being ancestral memory and like diasporic memory that we can take with us even literally the cultures of fermenting that we have fermenting ancestors we've always fermented and pickled and crowded those cultures live on and keep getting added to through the generations and the different regions we live in mm. i think a lot of judaism makes more sense when you start to integrate it with the land again you know like shabbat makes sense when you work in the land all week shabbat in the body mm. makes more sense often i found it growing up with an idea of shabbat a list of things that you don't do because it's a bit out of touch with the week. And rather than like Shabbat being this real sacred period of time beyond what's required to sustain our community physically is this place of spiritual nourishment. Being on the land really uplifts Jewish practice. It feels like they go together. We've done a lot of work exploring Shemitah in the Shemitah year. When you read into it, it's kind of baffling and amazing to have not heard of this idea. Shemitah is this once in every seven year rest for the land that is spoken directly to in the Torah. The idea being that it's a year in which the people and the land rest. You don't work the soil anymore. You eat perennials and preserves and you tear down your fences and you let the wild animals eat. You kind of return to a state of wildness within yourself and within your community. So it's like this kind of really radical idea, which not only integrates like a spiritual practice, but it's also incredibly radical politically and economically. It's a reset of a society. So to think about Judaism as an agricultural people, when you start delving into it, you see Jewish peoples were thinking about how we have a just way of being with the land and a way of reciprocity with the land. There was an awareness that we could shift and accumulate and not be careful with the soil. There was a prophesizing that if we don't look after our land in a particular way and look after our communities in a particular way, we might end up with a society that might be well, we might have gone beyond what even our ancestors were terrified about happening one day. You know, the soil is now a lifeless dust. It hasn't rested in many parts. So Judaism speaks to a deep relationship with land. The more I've got closer to the land and brought that Judaism in, the more Judaism has made sense to me. Mm. Yeah. And I would say also, before farming, or as part of farming and agriculture, this sense of, you know, earth is Adama and human is Adam. We are the earth. You know, we are the soil, we are the land, and it's only how long has it been that we've entered into this disconnect where we see ourselves as separate from nature, that we are not part of nature. You know, and some people would even say it's this, like, Judeo-Christian thing, you know, that from the Hebrew Bible and from the stories of the Garden of Eden, you know, we set ourselves apart from nature, and it's like a total misreading. Actually, that story is telling us that we are part of this earth, we came from the earth, and we are here to serve the soil. We have to serve the soil because we are totally reliant on it for our being and our survival, that we're all reliant on each other. And that feels like a central piece of Judaism, the Jewish story, and what it means to be a Jewish human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think this Shabbat has been really powerful for me because you really pointed to that before. Like, when you are working on the ground and on the land and really with the soil, which is hard work. Like I'm really sore in some muscles <laughs> that I didn't think I'd be... Like I guess I clearly am not working out my hamstrings <laughs> enough. But you feel the contrast in a way that's really beautiful where you're like in the ground, working in the ground, planting seeds, harvesting garlic, and doing this really wonderful work. But then you're able to really appreciate the rest that you take 
afterwards. And mm -hmm. what I've really gotten a lot out from this Shabbat is just how much we've centered the Kavanah of rest rather than the Keva of all the rituals like you mentioned, Samson, where it's like modern Shabbat for Orthodox Jews in a way actually feels like more work than like the week. It's like praying for hours and hours and doing all these rituals. I don't see how that's restful at all. It feels to me like the way we did Shabbat this morning where we were all lounging. We were literally all cozy in blankets and it was it was so wonderful to really just center the intention of Shabbat as a day of rest rather than this kind of like ritualistic day of hard worship. And I do think that there's something really powerful about focusing on the Kavanah of Judaism rather than this ritualistic focus on the Keva, the intent, the structure. And I do think there's something so powerful about that that you don't really feel if you really take it in the more orthodox sense of, oh, I got to go to shul for six hours today. And it was just so powerful to just take the time and rest. And there was also something beautiful where it's raining today, which I was thinking about the beauty of the fact that it's raining in Shabbos. And there's something so beautiful about God stepping in and doing the work that people might otherwise have to do of watering the plants. And I think there's just something so nice about a nice rainy Shabbos. Mm. <laughs> Sarah brought up the Garden of Eden and this misreading of what it means to eat from the tree of knowledge and separate ourselves, so to speak, from nature. But when we do that, we quote unquote, eat from the tree of knowledge. We recognize our work as work and our rest as rest. We get the opportunity to be intentional with how we spend our time, how we understand our relationship to nature and how we build our space and our rhythms throughout the year. And Judaism is a very temporal, very time-based tradition. You know, we have a Torah that we read through each year with the seasons. Every seven days, we restart our week and we have our Shabbat. And every seven years, we have the Shemitah, that connection of being intentional with our rest and recognizing like, yes, work is hard and we're toiling. But at the same time, this isn't just work for profit's sake or for work's sake. It's work for sustenance, work for sustaining life and work for sustaining community. We have the ability to appreciate that work, to recognize that the work we're doing is important. It's fascinating how how working the land and reading Torah have been two different ways that the Jewish people have moved through the year and tied themselves to the seasons, the rhythms of just the natural world. We also created this number seven that's kind of arbitrary. We've latched onto it as a people and we've structured our weeks around it. And now that the seven day week is the norm across the world. But the seven year thing that hasn't really caught on. And even the Shemitah, like back in biblical days, that wasn't always observed. And especially the Jubilee year that after every what 49 years, you have everyone being released from their debts, land being made common again. And that's especially a very radical tradition that even, you know, the ancient kings of Israel and Judea did not want to observe because that just upsets the whole social system. But Judaism really embraces that freedom, the freedom that our social relationships are human made and can be altered by human means. Yet we're still so grounded in the way that we do that. I just want to step forward a little bit the Torah is, at least from my perspective, it's, you know, human written, it's human made, and we observe it, we derive meaning from it. And so much of what's in there is about how we ought to live. It's a very ethical, moral document. And I was curious for any of you, how does Judaism as an ethics, how does that focus your relationship within your community, within your relationship to land, and within like how you see the Jewish relationship to non-Jewish communities within diaspora playing out? And what role does the Torah and other Jewish ethics fit into that? Big question. I think my idea of living a life devoted to justice and service comes from ideas in our scripture, in our practice, you know, ancestral histories that are interrelated with that. And I think part of being a diasporist is embracing co-liberation, is embracing the intertwined nature of peoples across the world who are now scattered. And it's coming from a place of understanding the effects of colonialism over many years and how that's affected Jewish people as one, but also many marginalized people in this country. So I think for me, it's central to what the work that we're doing is centering an idea of intersectionality and justice and working to support 
those most marginalized from land, but also telling our story of displacement over a long time, of the complex Jewish story of relationship with land, which is, on the one hand, landlessness, and in the past less than a hundred years, reckoning with Zionism, telling that story and understanding that is a huge part of the work that we're trying to do in order to weave our thread into an idea of land justice that incorporates all peoples in this land right now. And there are amazing organizations out there who are doing that work for specific communities, for black people and people of color. We're like really wanting to uplift their work mm. in what we do. I don't know if I got quite to what you're asking, but that's very well. Yeah, I'll add something just on the Torah front. There's an essay by Martin Buber about nationalism. He argues that essentially all nations, as they're modernly thought about, have like an origin moment by which the national history that is taught in schools like centers and that kind of like shapes the character of the nation as it's thought about. Mm. And Buber argues that that moment for Jews is the exodus from Egypt. And I think there's something really important about the position of Jews in that story, which teaches us we are the oppressed. We are to stand on the side of the oppressed because we were oppressed in Egypt. And I think that's something that really permeates all of Jewish history because we've been oppressed for so much of Jewish history that it really does give us an opening to really relating to other people that have been oppressed and really identifying with them rather than on the side of the oppressor. And unfortunately, in Israel-Palestine, Jews have become the oppressor. And there's a, the old adage that hurt people hurt people. Mm. And Jews are some of the most hurt people mm. in, in history. Mm. But I do think it's so important to center our relationship to being oppressed and mm. recognizing that mm. being oppressed is something that so many peoples have suffered under. Mm -hmm. And it's something that as Jews, we should be relating to, we should be identifying with and in solidarity with the oppressed mm. of the world. And mm. I think that comes from our Torah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's actually the most repeated phrase in the Torah, because mm. we were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know, I think that's huge. Also, the Talmud says, you know, about the Torah, turn it and turn it for everything is in it. And I would say you could argue for any point in your position in the Torah. Obviously, different perspectives are used. You know, I grew up with the Torah justifying and excusing very right-wing ideology. And then, you know, in the last 10 years, I'm like, oh, the Torah is actually pretty left wing. <laughs> the Torah is everything. Anything you could possibly want it to be, it holds it all. But I think that, I think it's 36 times that mm. it says that quote. You know, and that was just the times of the Torah it was repeated. If we continue to repeat that phrase throughout <laughs> our history as we've continued to be oppressed, then it's like, whoa, you know, the instruction has never been as strong that we are meant to not oppress people and work on the liberation for all people because we know that story. We know what it feels like. And we're not going to be the ones who are going to reproduce that or repeat it. Mm. There's so many important pieces really that come from agricultural laws and customs in Torah and in the Talmud that speak to this sense of justice, as you said, that really unites this sense of economic justice, racial justice, food justice, land justice, especially with Shemitah. You know, we have this sabbatical culture. It's not just, oh, the seventh year has arrived, it's now the Shemitah year. Like, this was something how we oriented our whole culture and society. You know, even if this was just a blueprint or it was just like our deepest hope or fantasy for how we might structure our society, like, this was what we put at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. You know, that we would have this every seven year release. You know, we'd have this jubilee every Every 50 year total release and return of ancestral lands and I think that we have to pay attention to that code and ethics at the heart of the tradition and I'm training to be a Hebrew priestess a Kohenet and you know from a feminist perspective I'm also looking at all the white space of the Torah all the stories and all the histories her history their stories that was erased never written never recorded you know intentionally burnt and buried so there's so much that's not handed down that we also need to reckon with and excavate and also Torah is now, you know, we're still receiving Torah, we're, Torah is still being revealed, we are carrying Torah between us and we have to allow for that now, you know, I think the great activism that's happening and all the movement building that's the prophets of the 21st century, we really need to uplift that and also inspire it and encourage it and make spaces for it to flourish because that's Judaism's wisdom still being revealed mm. well, I love the concept of a living Torah and the way we did our Torah service today which was not at all actually from the Torah, but more about finding meaning in everything, which I thought was so beautiful. And the fact that we really are a living tradition, Judaism isn't this thing that's put in a book and that's Judaism. It's something that's lived and is ongoing and constantly evolving. It's not stagnant.
moment, it's a process. I really love that idea. I think Martin Buber calls Judaism a creative spiritual process. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important to not see it as this like ossified thing that just always is, but something that's always evolving. Like you have the Hasidic movement, you have so many different movements over the last couple hundred years that just completely changed how people understood Judaism. And it's not something that is just one thing. And I think too many people kind of just think, oh, this is Judaism. Judaism is what I do in my synagogue and that's it. And I think that's a very narrow conception. And I think diasporism really focuses on just how diverse the practices of Judaism are and can be and have been historically. All of this really resonated with me, Torah as a history, or as like one interpretation of history, and us as a Jewish people, as a people that learn from the past and try to right the wrongs of the past is really where I see so much of our ethics coming from. Ben mentioned how Buber describes the Jewish creation myth out of Exodus and standing at Sinai. But I want to kind of go against Buber here. I feel like Judaism really became Judaism, not when we came into Israel, but when we were kicked out of Israel and we in Babylon. And the story of the Tower of Babel is actually in Genesis. It's not in Exodus. It comes before Exodus is written down. I'll just read a quick excerpt. This is from the New Standard Revised Edition. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they had come upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. And they had for them bricks and stone and bitumen and mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the mortals had built and said, look, they are one people and they all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their languages there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them from there over the faces of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because the Lord confused, Balal, the language of all the earth. And for there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the faces of the earth. This was the context where I was taught about tikkun olam and what it means to be Jewish and to try to bring the earth, bring the peoples of the earth back together and try to, as Jews, be this social glue, try to help peoples understand one another and to work with one another, not for some vain, you know, glory, some hubristic attempt to build a physical connection to God, but instead a spiritual or an intellectual connection to God, where we're understanding one another, understanding our connection to nature, working together. Before Jews were kicked out of Israel for the first time and moved into diaspora and Babylon and beyond. It wasn't really a Jewish religion. There wasn't rabbis, there wasn't Jewish communities, there was the temple, and it was seen more as the Israelite religion. But when Jews came back, that's where Judaism really became Judaism. And recognizing that Judaism might have originated in diaspora rather than in coming to Israel and Canaan and, you know, all the conquests of Canaan that are written about in Deuteronomy. Recognizing that where Judaism finds its own is within other cultures and trying to help people work together in those cultures. And to be, for lack of a better word, yeah, like a social glue, trying to help be that social cohesion and help us all understand one another. You know, it's a myth. We didn't all speak one language. We've been speaking different languages since the dawn of humanity. But at the same time, this yearn for a common language to understanding one another, I feel like is at the heart of Judaism. It's very much where I see the goal. How do we build a whole world again? How can we bring tikkun olam into the heart of our Judaism? And a lot of like more keva-focused halachic Judaism kind of forgets that. You know, we focus so much on Exodus that we don't realize that Judaism might as well be a diasporic religion. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, Jordan. I really wanted to turn towards your organization a little bit, Miknaf Haaretz. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the name itself, as well as what is really the intention of the organization that you guys have created. Miknaf Haaretz. We found this in Isaiah and it means ends or edge of the earth, which we feel is very diasporic. You know, in Hebrew, Miknaf, the word means like end or edge, but it also means wing. And we just felt that this sentiment was just very fitting for these times that we're in. You know, we really feel like we're in this moment of collapse. Extinction. We're literally in the sixth mass extinction. There's lots to despair about as we face these times, but in collapse, there is also 
emergence, possibility, there's also something creeping through the cracks in the ruins. And we see that, you know, in Druze tradition, there has always been, as you just said, Jordan, you know, things change, people move, and then we started as a we just had a chat and wanted to make a zine during lockdown back in 2020. And there's been different iterations of this work and these ideas, you know, over the years before. But it felt very important to gather community even when we couldn't be together in person. We created a zine for Shavuot during the first lockdown on themes of Shavuot and land, food, farming, and also on diasporism, radical politics and issues of food justice that really are at the heart of Shavuot. You know, and that was the start of bringing together community, well, in the UK, but actually also all around the world. We had submissions really from everywhere around these specific issues. And since then, we've run different retreats and workshops and events and a couple more zines. And then it was a Shemitah year. So we started to really explore Shemitah in earnest as it felt like it had a lot to say to these issues at the heart of what we're exploring. And our focus is really to build up radical, diasporist, nature-connected Jewish community in the UK. And we do that in a range of ways, you know, during the Shemitah year we also did a six-week virtual Shemitah session series and last year we held another virtual series which was all focused on diaspora, radical mm-hmm. diasporism. Yeah, this is where I met you all. I joined a ecological belonging focused diaspora session and I was pretty surprised how much it was focused on the ecology, the actual human nature relationship that goes beyond Judaism and towards something more deeper, somehow older than Judaism, because people have always had a relationship to nature. And the question's always been, how do we create a relationship of love? And I think Judaism is a religion all about love and bringing love into all our relationships and recognizing like God loves us and we love God. But at the same time, our communities love us and we love our communities. The work we do ought to be imbued with love and care. The focus on how can we build these positive relationships back with the land, with our communities, with the whole ecosystem, the non-human life really resonated with me. And that question of Judaism as an ethical religion, I think, really comes through when we're thinking about what is the role? of us as humans living in a community and our responsibility towards the land we're living on. And I was really impressed with how you all approached these topics. Thank you. I mean, I guess, yeah, also what we're seeing through doing our work is that by articulating our own diasporic experience, by publicly othering ourselves, by saying we are Jewish, we have this history, we have this culture, we have this complex relationship with land, there's a lot to reckon with. We kind of muddy the waters a bit, we complicate things in an enriching way Mm. that has then supported other peoples of different diasporic experiences to also share and we've learned so much from them and so part of the diaspora sessions was also about really exploring like what does it mean to be in relationship with land in this land, knowing that you know that Jewish peoples are multiracial and complex, and also that diasporic peoples in this country have so many stories untold that also bring a real richness to our relationship with the land. And I think for me, yeah, our work is really about creating a way in which Jewish people who are disaffected with Zionism, who might have been raised with Zionism and have found through their own journey that that doesn't speak to them and that they don't support what's happening in Palestine. And then also those who don't want to fully let go of their Judaism, because that can be the strong reaction to rejecting Zionism is to reject Judaism alongside it and we feel this kind of diasporic land-based relationship really offers a way of being positively Jewish in the world where you can really integrate our own cultural histories but also a real idea of justice and also just a real sense of beauty like our culture is beautiful and has something to offer Mm. and I think there's a lot of challenge to go through a journey of letting go of Zionism or nationalism when it's been a big part of your liberation story and it's important that we are thinking about alternatives is our activism for Palestine we are all interconnected everywhere and we need to reckon with that Mm. and I just want to uplift something that you said when we're doing this work of understanding and articulating our relationship with land it opens up so much possibility for understanding solidarity and allyship with other struggles other peoples who have you know very different but in some ways similar experiences of dispossession and displacement from land and it's important to say because we have been historically so intentionally pitted against each other. We have to remind people, you know, it's not an accident (laughs) that we don't have 
allies or you know that all these different groups feel pitted against each other or you know fractured it's like that has intentionally been done to us and this work of solidarity that's emergent for us as we're building relationships and that's really where we're at is like finding our way in the wider food and land justice movement and building those relationships Mm. but that just feels so so important another piece is that Sometimes in Jewish settings, you've kind of got to separate politics and the spirituality. You can't be like radical and do Shabbat. You know, actually, we just think they go hand in hand. And like Miknaf is also about creating a space where we want people to be able to bring their whole selves and not have to like leave different parts at the door. We do want to like really do Shabbat. We really want to celebrate the festivals. Like we want to talk about God. You don't need to believe in God. You might have like different, you know, there can be a sense of like being a bit allergic to spirituality or God language or like some really precious wise parts of Judaism and we really want to hold that and we feel that that's like part of you know this moment in Jewish history that at some point maybe we had to you know there was this great split between the religious and the secular you know and now there's a way we can do that where we're like totally we wouldn't use the word egalitarian we're queer and feminist and that's just who we are bringing that in as well as having a radical politics and that can feel quite rare to have both but our work is really trying to uplift that as well one more thing that you, you may think of is it's so healing to be on land in this country alongside other Jewish people because it is a massive part of Jewish oppression over a long time is landlessness. We've been purposefully barred from having a relationship with land. And a lot of Jewish people might have a relationship with land, but they might have to hide their Judaism. And that is maybe a privilege, especially for white Jews, to be able to hide that part of themselves. But the healing that's possible when you can really be in your Jewishness and in your love of land in this land is really powerful and worth uplifting. And so we found that repeatedly, all of the things we've offered, we've found people sharing that's been an unexpected and also very powerful experience of, wow, all of me is here and that's resourcing. And then that's how we can build a real sense of belonging and identity and to begin to build a real sense of belonging and identity. Mm. And I think connecting all of these things is that, you know, how I grew up, Or, you know, there's a sense of, like, agriculture or deep connection and love to land. Somehow it can be quite a nationalist thing. You know, that it's about a certain kind of belonging, which is narrow and militant and, you know, on bloodlines and is racist. (laughs) It's like, okay, hold on. There's a way of deeply connecting to land and working the land where we're not trying to build national identity, but we're building connection that like totally disrupts that whole notion which we know from Shemitah like Mm. we can't really own the land and when we truly build a genuine authentic connection with land there's no real national borders like that doesn't make sense and we're like right by the river Wye and that's the only thing that separates (laughs) Wales from England and it's like you have these ecological divides but it's also just carrying the waters of the world and it's nature it's not like these are things that have to divide people these are things that should be loved and cared for and they should be cared for by people on both sides of the river it's not like there's any reason that people have to be divided by these mostly arbitrary lines that we just draw on maps seems so silly when you say it like that Wales and England are a whole other conversation of course of course I just wanted to bring up that there are sometimes like geographical divides but those don't need to be social divides yeah one thing that came up in some of the diaspora sessions that you hosted was the rural way of relating to land focusing on farming which isn't something that everyone can do people live in urban environments and it's a lot a lot Mm -hmm. harder to connect to nature when you're surrounded by a concrete jungle Mm -hmm. i was wondering i'm sure jordan has lots of ideas on this as well i was wondering how this radical land-based diasporism can be applied in an urban setting Mm -hmm. i do just want to say first to that Mm -hmm. is that I think often we can jump to focus on the Jews who are living in the cities because there's lots of Jewish people who live in the cities and we can abandon or neglect thinking about Jews who might be living on land or Jews who might want to live on land. So I guess that's the reason why we have some focus on that and we totally know that like there's lots of Jewish people who are not living rurally. There's so many beautiful ways of totally connecting to these ideas. You know, we're all on land. The city is full of wildness. I've only recently moved out of the city. You know, even not having a garden 
garden. I mean, I was lucky to live in Sheffield, a beautiful city in the north of England, which had lots of green space in the city. It had like the biggest allotments in Europe. Me and some friends had an allotment, so I was able to caretake mm. that space. You know, and that's also a privilege. Em, who was here, was talking about community gardens, of which there's like a proliferation of community garden projects across the UK in cities that people can get involved in. And I think really build strong and deep connection to land through those spaces. And I would say, you know, also like local parks or a local tree. You know, there's just really small and subtle ways of building deep connection to land. These are friends. These are allies. Like these are, you know, the dandelions and the cracks and the pavements and like all this wildlife is springing up everywhere. It wants to survive. It wants to be a friend. It's here in the city. We can talk about rural isolation. It can feel socially isolating being in rural areas, particularly from Jewish communities. And of course, we're also wildness. Building strong social communities and activist communities in city spaces where, yeah, you can go to parks and hang out to have those connections and conversations. For me, that feels like an important thread for city-based folk. From my own context, I've been living in Los Angeles the last five years. It feels like it's been built up in such an anti-ecological way, in a way that destroys so much habitat. And yet it's still part of nature. There's still, as Sarah was saying, lots of plants growing in the cracks of the sidewalk, lots of coyotes even roaming the streets sometimes, deer in the mountains. There's so much life there. A lot of people even have been following the stories of the mountain lions that live in the mountains surrounding. As a city, LA is trying to really figure out how can we connect the habitat that's been fragmented within the urban landscape. From my own perspective, building a relationship to Los Angeles as a part of nature has been a struggle, but it's only been possible through some of those open spaces and finding a higher point where you can see the city as part of this interconnected landscape. Yes, there's lots of areas without many trees, with few parks, but even within those landscapes, life finds a way, <laughs> as they say, and humans are part of that. The community that we build can also go beyond the human. We have pets, birds that fly across the city. There's more tree diversity in Los Angeles than there was before the city was built because so much landscaping thought has been put into it, and it's a completely transformed ecosystem. But to say that it's not an ecosystem would be to miss the reality that life persists. And personally, like building a relationship to this space and trying to find my own connection, the sense of belonging there has been rooted in the history, feeling those stories, seeing where things might have went wrong, where things could be corrected and recognizing we have a living Torah, the, the nature, and it continues. Los Angeles and cities everywhere are changing to adjust and adapt to climate change, to the constantly evolving urban environment through those stories and through connecting to the plants, to the land, to the waters. I felt like I've been able to empathize with the landscape in a way to have a little bit of hope for what could be in the future when so much has been devastated, but there's still so much left. Just to add that if you eat, <laughs> then this is an important thing for you to be considering. Like we are all connected. The line between urban and rural is figurative and blurry and this is a question for everyone the injustice that surrounds ownership of land and who has access to it is a question that concerns everyone like whether you live in a city or otherwise our work the questions that we're asking the way in which we want to challenge the idea of rural being unsafe or not a place for all peoples that exists purposefully like we're separated from the land for good reason so i would just say that this concerns everyone and like it's our birthright the land belongs to everyone the land belongs to all people and no one <laughs> The same, you know, as in it doesn't belong to, you know, in this country we have an extreme amount of land disparity. Most of the land is owned by an incredibly small number of people. If that were a different situation, then we might be able to think about ways in which semi-urban land, people can have a deeper relationship with the lands that surround them. So... Yeah. And that totally connects people wherever they are. You know, those are the same issues. The housing crisis that's happening in cities, the rental crisis, it's all land ownership and lack of access for everyday people. And I also want to say that that is a big part of what we want to be fighting for as well. Really want to uplift like the right to vote movement, all the campaigns to have better access and green spaces in cities and particularly in poorer neighbourhoods. It's very political who gets parks, who gets allotments. You know, we're legally entitled to an allotment. We are 
legally entitled to access to land to grow food. You know, it's political that we wouldn't get that. I think another way to connect to nature in a more urban environment is simply appreciating food and really like looking at the labels and really respecting and appreciating just where these foods come from. I think it's really easy throughout this week when we've literally been eating food that a lot of it's grown on this farm or very close by. But I found like when I'm at a grocery store, I will like when I'm getting a bunch of bananas, I'll look at the banana and be like, oh, these are from Ecuador. Loving the fact that, yes, some of these foods may be coming from folks so far away, but cutting through that commodity fetishism, as Marx put it, and recognizing that these aren't relationships between things. These are relationships between people and with nature. And I think that's something that grocery stores are, it's hard to do sometimes, but if you just take that extra moment and like look at the label and see what country it says, obviously you can't know the specifics, but you can imagine it and you can appreciate where our food comes from. Jordan, did you want to ask one more question? I'm going to text it to you real quick. So unity is a Jewish value. Martin Buber, who we've talked about a couple of times, a really brilliant, I kind of see him as a 20th century Jewish prophet, really brilliant Jewish thinker, sees unity as a Jewish value. One thing Buber talks about is that he sees Zionism as building relationships between a holy people and a holy land. How can we bring these sacred relationships into communities where we live? Mm -hmm. Is unity a Jewish value? (laughs) I mean, it's in the Shema. Adonai Echad. God is oneness. Everything is connected. We're all part of one greater whole. I think you said before, it's hard to imagine for Judaism to make sense without the land. And I think that sense of unity, for me, comes about through deeper connection with land. And the Judaism that I grew up with felt very, very disconnected from nature, both because I grew up in an urban and suburban community, and also because my connection to nature was very much connected to both like this mythical land of Israel, you know, learning a lot about the ecologies of Israel, and also this longing for a place very far away. And I would go there, you know, and over the years I did build like a real connection with the land, but it was a learnt connection or indoctrinated connection uh, over many years. And I think in a way it feels quite simple, gathering together around food and being on land, meeting this moment of climate crisis and ecological collapse, you know, on a scale that we've never known. It's because of this great disconnect from nature. So I think this sense of unity is the thing that we have to gather in that feels like the most Jewish response to these times, which is what we're trying to do, is to like bring people together in connection with land and seeing ourselves as land and nature and to skill up in ways that are going to really regenerate the land and communities for these times and for many, many, many generations to come. You know, you could come on one of our retreats (laughs) (laughs) and we'll explore this stuff together. I think that's a question that we're trying to explore, how to build that. There's many, many ways, and it could be as simple as connecting with the miracle of seed and growing something in a pot in your garden or getting involved with a campaign around climate justice and what adding a Jewish piece into that and what that might look like. I think we're on our journey. And I want to say something about ecological belonging as well, that is everything we've been talking about in this sense of diasporism that we're exploring. In particular, ecological belonging and how it connects us to these times we're in. There's evidence now that only by having tangible, genuine connections with the wilds or with natural world, or we move to protect it. You know, I think we can read as much theory as we want about like the ecological collapse of our times, but I think if you build a relationship with a certain creature or tree or bioregion or river, and then you discover the story of its unraveling or its pollution or you hear the nightingale sing in the night in a forest in Sussex and you learn in a couple of decades you might not be able to hear those nightingales again they might disappear within our lifetimes I don't think we can truly meet the crisis with the courage and the determination that we really need if we're not both resourced from the land and the ecologies in us and with us but also we don't know what and who we're protecting if we don't build those connections Really, thank you so much. That was a really well-articulated response to a really big question. And the thing is, these questions are so huge and we don't intend to put the last answer in. These are questions that are always responding. And the reason we're putting out these podcasts is because we want more people to be thinking about these questions. They have incredibly huge implications for the moment we're in and the future that we're going into. 
I really think that the work you guys are doing is so incredibly important and like it feels niche. It is niche. <laughs> but at the same time, I think it has an importance that is so disproportionate to the size of these communities. Mm -hmm. And it also has relevance far beyond the Jewish community. Diaspora is like one of the most common trends throughout Jewish history. People have been dispersed, as Jordan said at the beginning, people have been dispersed for thousands of years, whether it's the dispersal of humanity out of the African continent or the dispersal of Jews from Israel-Palestine over the last two and a half thousand years. This is a very common trend that so many communities have to wrestle with, this idea of maintaining cultural identity and the wisdom that our ancestors have and had and we carry within ourselves. It's something that I think everyone should be wrestling with and unfortunately not enough people are and it's so important and it's really been so wonderful to be with you guys be here in this community even if it's just for a week i think the impact of this sort of stuff goes far beyond the time and the amount of people that are present and i hope that you guys continue doing this work and we find ways to deepen this work at an international level and build the connections that are needed to bring about the change that we really really need in this horrible time thank you for sitting down with me it's been really a pleasure and thank you so much for having us and we're really grateful that this podcast exists and you're doing it thank you jordan for joining us as well thank you oh, jordan. lovely to meet you jordan yeah so happy to be here nice to meet you all and i really hope you keep this work up before we go we also want to just do a big shout out to all the people and projects who have just really inspired our work along the way you know we don't do this in a vacuum we're deeply inspired and stand on the shoulders of many people and um, particularly link flegel who has closed the the last Shemitah year, but who are radical queer chicken farm in Millerton, New York. You can find out more about them online and we still love to use their resources in the things that we do. And we also learned a lot from our time at Adama Farm. Just wanted to uplift Adama and the kind of the Jewish farming fellowship there where we explored what earth-based Judaism looks like, what it means to be a Jewish farmer, what it might mean to do that in a way that's just and to reckon with that in the diaspora. What we're offering now, particularly this week, is really inspired by our time there. Mm. And also just to uplift Sadeth I'm also doing amazing work in the UK to try and build a relationship with land again. And there's a lot of other things happening, but we're glad to be part of yeah. this conversation. It's a big movement ecosystem and we're all within it.